This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. If you live a century, you're going to have lived a complicated life. The late Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, is no exception. A complicated life in many ways, not the least of which is religiously. How are the media covering the religion of this man whose life spanned a century? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Is there more to this Prince Philip man than those hints of infidelity in the Crown miniseries? Well, I think you have to just say, is there more to him than a Netflix miniseries? And the minute you say that, the answer kind of implies itself, doesn't it? I mean, when you deal with that specific angle of the Netflix series, I think it's important to know those. there are people who deny those rumors very strongly. There are people who insist that that happened, that he, there was a period in his life kind of earlier in their marriage when he had a, a period of infidelity. But, but at that point, you have to say that even if you think that's a part of the story. How does that fit into the story? It becomes very apparent that both the Queen and Prince Philip, that their faith becomes a bigger and bigger part of their life the more they age. And that the Queen, quite simply, as she has said repeatedly throughout her life, has done everything she can to see herself as a simple Christian to try to find a way, despite her role as the queen, and despite all that that entails, to find some way to keep her own faith at just a level of personal belief, you know, with pastors and people she trusts. And as a scene from The Crown, which concerns a real event, when she met with the young Billy Graham to kind of ask him some questions, about some of the things he had been preaching on that she had apparently listened to it, to some of his sermons on the radio. And that was a part of their conversations, was what did it mean to be a simple Christian? So if this man's marriage to that woman didn't fall apart, and it lasted and lasted, and instead of the way you hear in some situations with monarchies, where infidelity becomes just kind of like an accepted part of the picture and everybody just kind of smiles and goes along. I haven't read a single word by anybody who thinks that their marriage just smiled and went along. From all appearances and all evidence, their marriage got closer as they aged and her affection for him was obvious and vice versa. And at some point, we, we need to ask some questions about how their Christian faith fit into that. How do you evaluate some recent coverage of just, to, I mean, the way I put it, is just kind of a complicated picture of his religious views. He is baptized Greek Orthodox due to his national origins. And then, of course, 
has to become Church of England in some sense in order to marry the would-be queen. Well, we have an excellent, really, small kind of news you can use feature uh, by the Religion News Service, which gets into a lot of key details. But very few Americans are going to have a chance to see that. It's not the sort of thing that will run, you know, in newspapers from coast to coast. I think to some degree we have to wait and see what happens with the coverage of his funeral to see who is involved in the funeral, what is said at the funeral, and what kind of commentary there is at that time. Now, as you would expect, the British papers have done more with this topic, and that's when you get into what what to me, as an Eastern Orthodox believer, there are some details in his life that just cry out for more information and more of an explanation. I'll, I'll just give you an example. I mean, if you if you look at the world through the viewpoints, the the point of view of of Orthodox Christianity, the holy mountain in Greece, which is a peninsula going out into the ocean, its own state, and it is covered with Orthodox monasteries from around the world, and it is simply the heart of Orthodox monasticism in the world. Right after that would come like the the monastery in Kiev, the Great Cave Monastery, and several others, but everyone would agree that the Holy Mountain is a singular location in Orthodox Christianity. And a, a detail that reporters love to note about it, there are no women on the Holy Mountain. I mean, it's, it's, it's a male community of you know, monasteries all over it. Well, it is pretty normal for Orthodox Christians to make a visit to the Holy Mountain at some point during their life, for men to go there. Uh, My own priest, both of my priests, both in Baltimore and in Oak Ridge, have been to the Holy Mountain. It's a big deal for a priest to go there with his sons, especially if one of his sons has become a priest. But when someone goes back to the mountain over and over and over, which apparently, just in the reading I've been doing in the last couple of days, apparently Prince Philip did. And he also made quite a few trips to Russia, and we will get into why Russia would matter so much to him shortly. When a man keeps going back to the Holy Mountain, you're not going there for the scenery, and you're certainly not going there for the food, monastic food, and you're not going, well, maybe you are going there because you like five-hour worship services twice a day or something like that. I mean, but, but it's a very intense place that is not a tourism zone. And I guarantee you, when you're dealing with a man who was baptized Orthodox, which from the viewpoint of a lot of Orthodox means unless he actively shuns the faith, if you're baptized Orthodox, you are to some degree Orthodox, or the way they would say it is you're one confession to a priest away from being back in the faith. The way the Orthodox would see this, if this man kept going back to the Holy Mountain, someone needs to ask if one of the elders on the Holy Mountain had become Prince Philip's spiritual father. And I'll be very interested in seeing if anyone asks that question in the coverage concerning his funeral and in the profiles we see surrounding that. Why was he going back to the holiest place 
location in Orthodox monasticism. If not, to visit a particular monastery, and if you're visiting a particular monastery, the implication is that there is a monk or a spiritual elder there that you're going back to see. I think it's a valid question, and I don't just say that because I'm Orthodox. It's a valid question to ask if he had a spiritual father on the Holy Mountain. So do you think that the media coverage is explaining carefully enough this kind of odd relationship that he had with the Church of England, especially matters, kind of the matters of ecumenical import? Certainly not in the American press, other than the religion news service story that I mentioned earlier. We're just not seeing that at all. I mean, but it's very British to care a lot about what his connection was to the Church of England. And I should stress that he had apparently many close friends among Anglican priests. And I've read passing references to it was very common for him to follow up with ministers and have lengthy discussions and arguments about the contents of their sermon. Can you imagine that call? I mean, the Queen and Prince Philip come to church, and you know, you go after the service. You're standing around outside, and the Prince Philip walks up and wants to question, you know, your theology concerning, you know, Paul's letter to the Corinthians or something. I mean, it would be nice to know more about those conversations, and and what was involved in all of that. But his connection to orthodoxy is fascinating on many levels. And part of it is that when his father died, his mother didn't just become a more active believer. Prince Philip's mother, Princess Alice of Battenberg, became an Orthodox nun. There's this period of time when you have pictures of the royal family and there is a nun standing in the back ranks, and that is Prince Philip's mother and then you go one step further than that. She is buried in an Orthodox church in Jerusalem. And she's buried there because her aunt was not only a nun, but was a martyr, was killed by the Bolsheviks as a part of her service to the wider family of the Tsar of Russia and her husband had been assassinated, and when her husband died, and she, she married into the, the royal family of Russia, when her husband died, she became a nun, was famous for her service to the poor, and might have been on her way to sainthood as it was. But then, when the Bolsheviks massacre the Tsar's family and many of the people surrounding the Tsar, she is killed with a group of nuns who they are, this has been verified with factual evidence in the form of their bones and their relics. They were thrown into a well and the Bolsheviks killed them by tossing hand grenades into the well. And the local people said that even after that, the nuns weren't dead yet and could be heard singing in the, you know, in their dying hours could be heard singing hymns down in the well. Well, that relative of Prince Philip is now a saint in the Russian Orthodox Church, which might explain some of his trips to Russia. 
and certainly explains some of his trips to Jerusalem, where not only his mother is buried, his mother is buried beside her aunt, who is a saint in the Orthodox Church. So there's these fascinating and very deep ties there. I should mention that the new martyr, Elizabeth, is someone who has become quite popular in the United States among the Orthodox as a saint. And in fact, among the relics of the saints in our altar at the church I went to in Baltimore, I believe there was a piece of her of one of her habits that she wore, and was that was in the reliquary at the, you know at our parish. Elizabeth, the new martyr, is someone that a lot of Orthodox Christians would know about, and they would know her story, they would know her witness of faith right down to the moments of her death at the hand of the Bolsheviks, and many of them would also know her connection to Prince Philip. He had friends among the clergy in the Church of England, and I think the RNS piece even mentions that he helped, along with one of these friends, helped found a, they call it a religious study center. Right. A, a study center, St. George's, for, it's, it's worded in different ways, but apparently kind of just like a recovery group for worn-out priests but it, it was more than that to him, and it addressed a whole lot of subjects. And this frequently leads into discussions of his views on the environment, which were much more religious than they were political. And I think that was totally sincere based on what you can see. And he seems to have handed some of this down to Prince Charles. And in fact, Prince Charles has frequented the Holy Mountain enough that you will hear Greeks kind of whisper about that and wonder, what that's about. I would assume that it, it has as much to do with him identifying with the changes in his own father's life as his father grew as a man, because obviously Prince Charles's struggles and infidelity and the, the death of Lady Di and then his decision to marry the, the woman with whom he had had affairs for years, Prince Charles's attempts to grow up to be a more mature man I would assume that he's trying to take some sort of inspiration from his own father and from his father and his mother's deepening marriage through their life. Terry, I didn't expect to read this in the Arnest story, which was, he is worshipped by a small sect in the Pacific Islands as a god. How in the world did that happen? Well, I think that just has to do with the British royalty being major players on a world stage. And when you have people who are called kings and queens, and you have other cultures that have their own approach to royalty and their own views of royalty, I am not surprised that somehow the king and the queen of England get kind of raised up to another level. But in this case, the story that I've read on that that mentions that doesn't really say how they became fascinated with him in the first place. I think it's possible to assume it had something to do with World War II, and of course, this is a man with a rather singular and interesting military career as well. I mean, people in the monarchy often kind of sign on to the military and get themselves a uniform, you know, with a little bit of activity. We're dealing with a man here that it was much more than that. Flew helicopters, flew airplanes, was involved, you know, in quite a bit of stuff. So I'll admit that's a mystery to me, but I would just simply say it has something to do with just the universal 
adoration of the British monarchy in different parts of the world, including parts of the world where you know that were formerly colonies. He was the first of the, the royal family at the time to do something that was considered, when he did it, extremely controversial, and that was to yes. visit Israel. Yeah, and that's a fascinating moment. And once again, it touches on several different levels. The royals had not gone to Israel because of the, the long history in Israel of Zionist violence against the British governors of that land. So you have the formation of Israel. You have this history of violent conflict, of, of acts of what some people would call terrorism, other would call patriotic violence. And you have a whole bunch of other things linked to that. But before this, this ban on travel to Israel was even formally ended, Philip had another reason to want to go to Israel, and that, once again, is his mother. This amazing Greek woman who had become a nun and had this, this fascinating background in her history, she apparently, in Greece, had shielded Jewish believers and helped hide them. You can imagine how risky that would be for people, you know, living under Nazi occupation. And you're a part of the royal family and community. And yet she hid Jews and helped kept them safe. And he traveled to Israel when she was hailed as one of the righteous among the nations at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. And getting that salute from Israel is no small honor. And it was because of her efforts during World War II. So he was going. He was going to that ceremony no matter what. And even though the ban on royals going to Israel had not been lifted yet from the British side of that equation, he went anyway. I mean, and that's pretty symbolic when the husband of the queen breaks that ban. That's not like a minor prince deciding to take a trip to Israel. That was a big deal. I do want you to address what was the story swirling around Philip before he died. Of course, no one could anticipate that he would die so closely to these events, but two members of the royal family who have expatriated themselves to the United yeah. States, to the West Coast, appeared with none other than our religious guru in the United States, Oprah Winfrey, for an audience. I don't know who was having an audience with whom in that particular interview, but there were things said about the royal family that kind of came back around to Philip's tendency to issue gaffes on a regular basis. Well, yes, and the fact that some of those were just his his kind of blunt man from another century references to issues of race. I also I'd I'd love to know what was this man's native tongue. I mean, obviously he spoke English perfectly well, but at some point when you have an older man who has probably several different languages resident, you know, in his mind, sometimes images don't come out the way you expect them to. And a lot of Anglican leaders have defended him and have said he was highly embarrassed by some of the things he said. This was just a part of who he was, and he expected, like men from his era, he expected people to kind of fight back and let's have an argument about this and let's go back and forth. But because of who he is... He just says it, and it just kind of sits there, and the next thing you know, it's in the tabloids. So when people were saying that there was racism in the royal family, I mean, there were people who said, well, 
you know, that must have been Prince Philip. But you're hearing other sources that are saying, no, that's not what this was about at all. But this controversy, the Oprah interview and all that other stuff, it points to another issue here, which is simply the difficult life of children in the royal family. And there are many, many tabloid struggles in England and all that the family has gone through. I mean, they don't do a Netflix miniseries or make a movie that wins an Academy Award or two about the royal family and Lady Di without there being drama and sexiness to some of these topics. But in this case, what I think is, is interesting is whatever you want to say about Prince Andrew and whatever you want to say about Markle and the next generation and whether they'll get things cleaned up and does the British population, do the citizens actually want Prince Charles to become king? I think the the bigger subject is just kind of sitting there like an elephant in the living room, which is the astonishing affection in the land of England for that woman and that man at the heart of the story, which is the queen and her consort and her defender and her husband. And with the death of Prince Philip and the, the kind of emotions that have come out and that the universal kind of outpouring of affection for the queen and her loss, kind of recognizing how important he was to her and to her strength and to her story. I think to some degree in England, this is the foretaste of what is coming when the, the nation loses her. And I have read some long and interesting articles about amid all of the talk about, you know, we've outgrown the monarchy and this is a thing of the past and why can't we just move on? That might be some popular voices in London, but that's not what you hear when you get out into the rest of England and talk to ordinary people. And this funeral and her appearance at the funeral and what gets said at the funeral and whether the grandchildren speak and I'll be interested in knowing if there's an Orthodox clergyman or two who takes part in the ceremony. There are lots of different signals that can be sent in a royal funeral. A royal funeral is a big thing, even in the age of COVID. I mean, it will be televised, of course, and people will be paying very close attention. And there will be all kinds of signals of this man's unique standing that is sent during that service. But I'm, I'm much more interested in a much more basic issue, subject, and image. And that's simply the two of them. And that remarkable marriage. She is a singular figure in the history of Britain. And through all that she has been through, and the astonishingly long reign, at her side is Prince Philip. And she is the first person to say, he's a big part of the story. And there's no way I could have done what I did without him at my side. And I think it's going to be interesting what's said in the sermon and how Britain handles this. It's not as though their society is of one. They may all love the royals, but it's not as though they're of one mind. 
uh, the Brexit controversy, it comes to mind that something deeply politically divisive in British society and in Europe in general. Yeah, of course. And, and I don't deny that. But at the same time, I'm trying to, I guess what I'm saying is that London is not all of England. And we saw that in, we saw that in Brexit. We've seen it in other controversies in England in the last decade or so. Much like the divide in America between New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, the Acela Zone blue zip codes, and then Northern California and Southern California versus the heartland and all that. What's happening in England is an even more emotional version of that. And suffice it to say, Prince Philip is going to be remembered. <laughs> he's going to be remembered with a lot more affection in pubs across the ordinary cities and towns of England among older generations and anyone left within one generation of World War II, there's going to be more affection for him there than there will be among hipsters in the artist community of London or something like that. So once again, the outpouring of emotion linked to his death and the, the emotion attached to his wife's grief, I think it's going to be a generational thing in England, and I think I frankly think it's going to be stronger than uh, a lot of elite media folks would like to think it will be. The Associated Press quoted several religious leaders about Prince Philip's faith. What stood out to you in that AP story? Oh, the one that the the version that ran in the in the Independent, yes, which was written with AP. Well, I mean, you know, it's this is a man of the world. This is a man who had to deal in a lot of interfaith settings and had to show respect for all world religions. The very nature of his work in the environmentalism and his work with poverty projects required him to be kind of, of an, an interfaith figure as well as an ecumenical figure. Yet at the same time, you only have to cut like one level back and you get Anglican clergy saying, you know, we had fascinating discussions with this man. He was a man who would say, would speak his mind and shoot from the hip, but we knew more of him than that. I'll be interested in seeing whether some of the tributes to him come from conservative Anglican clergy as well as liberal Anglican clergy. I will be, of course, be interested in seeing if there are tributes that come from Orthodox bishops in England, and he knew several of them and was close to one or two who are quite famous. Of course, they're quite elderly now as well, when you, when you consider how if they were his adult friends and he dies at 99, we're talking a lot of older members of the hierarchy of religious groups there as well. The ecclesiology of these churches, the, the top ranks of their clergy. Watch for what is said about him, and there'll be tributes from a bunch of different religions, but listen for which ones kind of see him as one of their own. And there will be tributes that come from the Anglicans, and I think there'll be tributes from others as well. That summary that the AP helped write, I haven't seen an AP story that got into some of these details yet, but I will continue to watch. And again, whatever you want to say about the Anglicans, they know how to do a funeral. <laughs> and the prayers that are chosen, the hymns that are chosen, 
the the special scripture readings that are chosen, all through that, this is going to be offered as a chance to interpret the mind of this man and his heart and soul. Because I guarantee you he played a role in the details of his own funeral. That's the way the British handle this. I mean, they have... They have this all written up well in advance. So you're probably aware that there are different levels of British royal funeral, and this is going to be a big one. And it will have lots of texts worth digging into, and I'll be interested in seeing if the American press does any, or do we have to once again rely on the Brits to do our homework for us? In that vein, two quick final questions. From the American perspective, we look at this and it seems kind of odd to us because our leaders are not required to be religiously observant in public. Yeah. But in England, if you're married to the queen, you are. Yes. She's the head of the church. Do you think we American news consumers can kind of grasp that part of public life? About a minute. Well, well, let me give you the detail I think we'll hear about. When she becomes queen, he wanted to salute her as queen, but he fought like crazy not to kneel before her. And some people said that this was because of just his pride as a man, that he didn't want to kneel to his wife. I think it's going to be interesting to see if there's more discussion of whether, to some degree, he doesn't want to kneel to the the woman who is the head of the Church of England. I mean, she, she's the monarch. She's the defender of the faith. Even if Prince Charles wants to call that defender of faiths, or faith singular without the article the in front of it. There's no question that Elizabeth is defender of the faith, and that faith is the Church of England. It'll be interesting to see if people speculate that some of his struggles at the time of their wedding, and in the years after that as she becomes the Queen of England, Were there any religious issues in that? Was that just male pride? Or were there other things related to that relationship and him having to salute her as the head of the church? I think it'll be interesting to see if anybody discusses that as well. And finally, as you've mentioned, Prince Philip's funeral is Saturday. What future religion angles would you like to see about Prince Philip? Well, of course, I would like to see someone try to figure out why he kept going back to Mount Athos. And if you're looking for a news hook here, I think it will be interesting, especially as we move out of COVID. I would look in the next 12 months to see if Prince Charles goes to Mount Athos. And if he does, does Prince William go with him? And... A lot of people might say, well, that's, you know, Prince Charles in mourning. He's saluting his father. Well, he's not just saluting his father. He's saluting a specific activity and loyalty of his father. So, yes, I would, if Prince Charles goes to Mount Athos, I would like to see people try to find out what that's all about and what his father's connection to the Holy Mountain was all about. They could even just ask a very simple question. Was there one monastery that Prince Philip went to 
over and over and over. And has Prince Charles started going to the same monastery? Simple question of fact people could ask about it. With about 30 seconds here, is the American press equipped to accurately report on something that's not only only an overtly religious life, but one that is as complicated as Philip's life? That's a great question. I would say we're going to find out with the coverage of the funeral. Can they handle the prayers, the hymns, and the scriptures of the funeral? Do they get the details right? And then we can listen to the Orthodox question in that as well. But pay attention to the details of the funeral. Are they interested at all in the scriptures, the hymns, and the prayers chosen by this man and by his wife to help sum up their life? Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he is founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.